Welcome to the Woe Podcast about horses and horsemanship. You found the place where we talk horses. I'm your host, John Hare. And I'm Renee Hare. And yes, I know we haven't produced an episode for some time, but it's springtime in California and the sun's been shining. And it's been nice riding weather. You know, if the good Lord wanted us to uh, do a podcast, he wouldn't have made the sunshine. That's the way I look at it. He would have kept it raining. We've been out <laughs> practicing with our horses, and we're here today because we want to review the Along for the Ride Symposium that was held in Las Vegas at the end of February. It was a three-day symposium featuring Andrea Fapani, Sean Flarida, and Nick Dowers. There were a lot of uh, well-known trainers in the audience as well attending the symposium. Clinton was there, Clinton Anderson, Sandy Collier. And Barbara Schulte. Barbara Schulte, right. And we even had some of our local trainers there. It was pretty fun to see everyone attending to learn. It was a really unique event. It was a pretty interesting format because we got to see Nick start two colts on the first morning pretty much doing groundwork, round pen work. But it was just real fascinating to see him interpret the horse's reactions. So he did that for probably a good hour that first morning. And then the two rainers were on their horses and just asking questions back and forth. I think questions that they think the audience might have had about what he was doing. In that way, it was a unique experience because you had these two great horsemen that were watching a third great horseman start colts and they would ask him why are you doing that what are you looking for here what do you see happening in these horses and it was all happening in real time it was almost as if we were a fly on the wall watching these three guys talk about the process that Nick was doing on those horses Right, and I think that that's how they intended the symposium to be, and I thought it was pretty effective. It was fun to see them working just as they would have worked at home. And there was a lot of kidding and teasing going on. Andrea's uh, much funnier in person than he comes off sometimes on his podcast. I think everybody was pretty surprised at the the level of humor he had. (laughs) Nick, I think, intended to saddle those colts the first morning he didn't but both of the other fellows were kidding him about staying on (laughs) and he kidded them right back about uh, how sean was going to ride one of them (laughs) and weigh it down (laughs) hey i'm steve ross and i want to welcome everybody to the teton ridge along for the ride symposium but you're going to be a fly on the wall while some of the greatest minds in the horse business are going to walk you through their thought process of how they deal with every phase of training a horse from the beginning all the way through to the more finished stuff over the next three days. I don't ever remember an opportunity like this because you're going to see one of the great cowboys of our generation, Nevada's own Nick Dowers, a man that grew up in that great basin He's going to work with two young, unstarted colts this morning and to assist him and to help you think through it, we have none other than the two leading money earners all time in the National Rating Horse Association. We have Sean Florida, And joining him, the man that was the impetus behind all this, Andrea Fapani, Scott Stanley. Nick's gonna do his work. 
work in the round pen, Sean and Andre will be on horseback and they'll be speaking through it, asking questions, and the opportunity here is you're going to see an actual process. How Nick works with these young horses and then you're going to see that sifted through the minds and the words of two of the greatest horsemen of our generation because more than anything else, their goal is for you to leave this symposium with an understanding of horsemanship on a greater level, and that is, how does the horse think? What makes a horse do what he does? These are three of the people that have really uncovered that, and I know they're excited to share that with you, so I'm going to get out of the way and turn it over to Nick. Yeah, Renee, Nick's method of starting horses, and I'm not a colt starter, nor do I really want to be, but I really find it fascinating in watching a colt starter I think that uh, the toughest thing for me to learn in horsemanship has been feel and timing. And I do think that cold starters really have that locked down. And so watching Nick be able to ask his horse to do something, realize that the horse is doing, and then rewarding by taking the pressure off was almost magical. He did some uh, very fascinating things with that horse. He did in a fairly short amount of time. I think the biggest takeaway for me was that so many of us drill on our horses. And and like he says, if the horse has done it correctly and you keep asking him to do it, he's not sure he's done it correctly. So he, he might keep looking for another answer. I thought that was a really great point to make. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And then and the two horses, he had them in back-to-back round pens and the two horses had such distinct, different personalities. One was a mare and one was a gelding. And and it's interesting that Andrea thought the one that was easy was going to be the hard one, and the one that was difficult would be the easy one. So even a really good horseman doesn't always know what a two-year-old's going to do. And he moved him pretty far along in that first hour, hour and a half of Friday morning, but he didn't push him too far, which I really appreciated. Right. You know, he this starting to cold, those experiences are going to be with that horse for a long, long time. So they were really careful to take their time in the starting process. Right. There were there were no real blow ups or bad feelings. Right. And so after Nick was done, they all three came out on their two year olds and they showed you what was going to be expected of the horses after they started and how they progressed through their two-year-old year. Right. I think I think those three horses as two-year-olds might have all had a different amount of rides under them, but they were all fairly new to being ridden and told what to do. So that was that was very interesting. I think Nick's only had 10 rides and the other two had a little bit more well, Andrea opens up the session with this comment about the horses, so maybe we'll listen to that, and then we'll come back and talk about it. And Andrea, I'm going to turn it over to you and let you discuss what you're thinking, what you're looking for on these horses at this phase of their training. Yeah, thank you, Steve. These called here, just so that we know where we're at, we started in towards the end of December, and then he had a few days off, probably about three weeks, we castrated him, got a little infection, so he lost a little bit of time. So we probably have about 40 rides on him at the most, probably closer to 30. 
And that's why I wanted to start in the round pen, because I'm out of the round pen, obviously, with him at home, but I wanted to show you the few little things that I need to have on my horse before I get on him. And that's where probably Nick and I are a little bit different. I've learned more from the Clinton Anderson method to where I, I want quite a bit more control. Call me a sissy or whatever, but when I get on him, I don't want to get bucked off, so that's just me. So. My horses, uh, before I get on him, they have pretty much a, a really good idea of what I'm going to ask him when I get on him. And the main thing is that, you know, we can talk about groundwork and all that, but that's not where we're here with me today. The main thing is that I want to make sure that I have at least one tool that I can always go back to when I'm on him, even the first ride. And that tool is going to be a one-rate stop and getting it to flex to the side. And I'm going to use that tool in multiple ways. And I'm always going to relate to that. I think that the biggest mistake is to not have anything you can relate to that they know already on the ground when you first get on it. <laughs> yeah, Renee, I really like that statement. Andrea saying, when I get on, I don't want to get bucked off, but that's just me. Like the rest of us don't mind that at all. I'd rather not. <laughs> I would rather not. And that it was really cool to see, uh, one, that part of the cult starting process that Andrea used was some of Clinton Anderson's methods, which we followed, and that was how I got my start. But also that he had a plan every time he got on his horse on what he expected him to do. And he had a plan for what to do if the horse didn't do what he wanted to do. Right. That's always important, too. And as they went through what they did with their two-year-olds, you really got a, a feel for how they were trying to develop these horses so that they could be ready when they took them to the futurity. Right. The two Rainers horses were destined to be Rainers. And every little step in that process was building towards those very high-level maneuvers. After each session, they really made time for everyone to ask questions with a, a Q&A session. And everybody could come up to the mic and ask whatever question they wanted to ask. And these guys were so open with their answers that it would... And sometimes the answers were over my head. Yeah. <laughs> but they were very free with advice. I mean, they talked to a lot of people over those three days about problems that they might have or things they wanted to do with their horse. And through this podcast episode, I'm going to play a couple of the Q&A sessions for you. Just a, a few of the questions that I thought were really helpful for me and Renee and the ones that we thought were really impressive. They went on for much longer than this. These guys were really generous with their time and experience. Mandy, all right, you have a question for our panel. Mandy, what would you like to know? I'd like to know, some of us may not have a, a horse that has the same physicality or capability to move like these horses. So how do we know when it's us versus our horse just doesn't have the ability to perform like what we see out there? That's a great question. Is my horse not doing it because I didn't train my horse to do it? Is my horse not doing it because he can't do it? How do you go about determining that? Great question. One, one of the things, like even like when Nick was working those horses in the round pen, and I talked to Nick afterwards, I should have talked to him in here, but we would talk about those horses, are they using their butt, are they moving their shoulders, how are they traveling around there, are they in control of their body? So some of those things would indicate that horse can go ahead and go be certain maneuvers or stops or whatever. 
but there are horses that you put in that round pen and they're not very handy or they're not very athletic. And then you can say, no, he probably isn't going to be able to go be a reining horse or whatever it may be, or he's going to be a whole lot more difficult to train to do those things. So some of the things when you're watching a horse play or watching a move gives you a little bit of a feeling of what he's going to be like. Which I agree with that 100%, but I think more important when you're on it, ask yourself, okay, this doesn't feel very good. But once again, like Nick and I were talking, there could be a lot of different ways of not feeling good. If you feel some sort of resistance, the pro horse probably can do more, and it's probably you or the training that needed to get better. Meaning that if I'm spinning to the right, and I'm asking for more speed, and this horse is hopping up and down, resisting it, I don't think that he can't go fast. I'm thinking that he's resisting my cue to go faster. But if I feel that there's no resistance, and he just can't figure out where to put his feet, and every time I go a little bit faster, he's not pushing into my leg, he's not pushing into my hands, he's staying in the turn. I can put my hands down, and he stays in the turn locked in, so I know his mind is with me. I've got his mind, uh, he's moving off my pressure, and he just still can't do it. That's probably a good signal that it's him. But if you're feeling any resistance, you got something to work on before you find out if it's him or you. I, I know that there's more training to be done. The question was, is it me or is it the horse? Right. First, I thought Sean gave a really good answer, and I like some of the points he made. But Andrea's point, try to feel the resistance that your horse is getting. Is it resistance from him not wanting to do it, which might be a training issue, right? Well, I think what he's saying is that if you feel resistance, then there is more training to be done. Right. If, if your horse is doing what you're asking without resistance, but just isn't physically capable of stepping it up, that's when you don't feel the resistance. Right. So the horse is doing, you feel like you're getting the horse's effort, but the horse isn't able to perform the maneuver at a certain level. Then you just say that this horse isn't cut out for this job isn't athletic enough to do the fast circles or to do the rundown. Right. Yeah. I thought there was a lot of insight in that. Me too. And there was a lot of talk about headset and headset of, you know, where the horse's head is in, uh, in particularly in raining. I know that rainers have been uh, criticized for this. And these guys had a really good answer on that too. All right. Thank you, Andrea. Hi, what's your name? Darian. Darian, where are you from? Maryland. Maryland, let's have some crab cakes. Hey Maryland, what's your question for our panel? My question is more for Nick Dowers, here representing Rain Cow Horse. More for the final picture, how are you asking your horse's headset versus the NRHA standard headset? Great question, Nick. Why don't you address the head issue? <laughs> That's it? That's all. No. So, Andrea pointed it out. If a horse is balanced and is engaged, he, he's, he's balanced, he's engaged behind, and he's built, so that's going to put him, his build, to find his balance at certain places. So, I'm thinking, is he mentally soft? Is he engaged? And then wherever his head and neck is, is going to deter be determined by the horse. 
like Andrea said, this horse, he finds his balance point a little bit more elevated than some of my horses. I've got other cow horses that lope around like, like Rainers, they're really low. And most of the time, people would think that I put a lot of credence or a lot of importance on where the head and neck is. And I really don't. I think about, are they mentally soft? And if, and if they're engaged. And if they're mentally soft and engaged, then where their head and neck is, is gonna be up to them. That's why if, if anybody has watched me show before, you'll see some horses where I'll load my circles and they'll be like this. And then you'll see the very next horse I come in, they might be below their withers. That's totally up to them. It, it's not up to me to find where, they're gonna tell me where their balance point is. It's my job to get them soft and have them engaged and their neck is gonna be up to them because you know, some horses find their balance with their head really low and other horses find their balance with their neck a little higher. That's up to them. It's up to me to get them soft and get them engaged behind. And then along with our rainers and our cow horse guy, one afternoon or two afternoons, we had an AQHA pleasure trainer. And that was another interesting contrast in headsets. Of course, we all kind of laugh at the pleasure horses that have their heads so darn low. But he just gave a very good presentation about the value of pleasure horses in the in the show industry and, and did a real nice job presenting his horse. He did. He started out with a little bit of the history of the why there were pleasure classes and what those pleasure horses' job was mm -hmm. supposed to be, and they were supposed to take care of people. Keeping right? people safe. Right. Older people, kids, people who didn't want an exciting ride. <laughs> to that end, on the last day, oh. Andrea switched horses with Aaron. I think his name Aaron, is right. Aaron Moses. And Andrea got on this pleasure horse <laughs> and... <laughs> And he was loping very slowly and asked, am I going too fast? And the answer was, yes. <laughs> and, and when Aaron was on Andrea's reining horse, he asked if he was going too fast. And Andrea said, no. <laughs> I'll tell you, when you see those big fast circles in person, they're fast. They are fast, yeah. In the uh, afternoon session, they actually brought in some older horses and they worked on different maneuvers. So they showed us where some horses were in their stops and some in their turnarounds. And one of the questions related to what's the best reward to give to a horse when he does something right. I just had one quick question. Andrea was talking about using maneuvers to catch his mind. What is the best reward that you found to reward the quality of the intent and you pick the maneuver? Stop. <laughs> no, and that's not really. That's stop doing whatever you're doing, and it doesn't matter what you're doing. If I'm doing this because I want to address his mind leaving me, if I take two more steps and he thinks about it, and then he comes back to me and I stop. So okay, that's good enough. So it's the same thing. I was using the maneuver. I'm using the turnaround to. Applied pressure. How do you recognize it? Or well, whatever he quits doing, what he was doing for you to apply pressure. It may be nickering, it may be leading to the gate, 
it may be missing a stop, whatever it is, just like Leo was doing, he was using the turnaround to apply a little bit of pressure and that horse was missing the, missing the stop. And then we go ask for it again. When he does it right, or when he quits doing something you don't like, you stop. And that's where most people, they think sitting there, yeah, yeah, that makes sense, but then I see so many of them at home, that you know the horse is over there, they soften them up and just keep going like this, but they're never communicating to that horse because they never stop. And the stop means so much for those horses. Yeah, I would agree with that. When I heard the question, instantly what popped into my mind is when he was stopping that colt, we used the maneuver of the stop and the turn as the correction to get to his mind to put effort into the stop. And so that was a way we got him better at a maneuver stopping and we got more direct intensity with his mind to what we were asking. So to me, that was, that was a really good way of using a maneuver to get him mentally. And then just to follow up on it, when the horse gave that extra effort and had really good intention, what did he do? He stopped. And then the next time when he come back, he only had to do two. And, and then the horse is like, I know what I gotta do. To, to earn relief and satisfaction. And, it's, and once they learn that, it just comes quicker and quicker. And Nick talked about was something that we hadn't really thought about much, is that when your horse has a good intention or gives you that extra effort, really try to get sensitive to it and, and recognize it and reward that. And as we were trail riding, we thought, well, you can reward a good intention, so perhaps you can punish a bad intention, and that worked pretty well on the trail. If somebody wanted to reach for grass, you can see that intention, give them their little pop, and move on. And later in the, the weekend, one of the sessions that Nick was working on, and I think that almost all of them have mentioned this too, is that when they started a maneuver or they started a training segment, let's say, that immediately they started looking for the exit point. They knew what they wanted to look for and when they were going to get out of the exercise. So when the horse gave extra effort with good intention, Nick stopped that exercise, Andrea stopped that exercise, and they moved on to, to work on something else. They didn't continue to drill it. And I thought that right. that was a really important point to bring home and and try to work to use on our horses. Right. All three of them at some point in time, while they were doing something, verbalized the fact that they were looking for where they were going to exit. And that's just great planning, knowing what you're doing. And then a person asked a really good question to Sean about his horse who was kind of acting up and how he would have done it differently. We have another uh, question from one of our attendees here. Hi, what's your name? Hi, it's Kai. Hi, Kai. What's your question for the group? I have a question uh, geared more specifically towards Sean. When he was riding his horse and working on the turnaround, and the horse looked a little fresh, I'm kind of wondering when would you, I guess, choose to stay in that turnaround? and just wait it out? Or would you ever maybe abort the turnaround, get the horse with you mentally a little bit better, and then go back to it? It would have been nice if we'd have had the time today. I probably would have went off and took a little bit more of the freshness out of it, and then come back to him so he's a little bit more focused, a little bit more concentrated. But with time restraints and stuff, I was just trying to go ahead and struggle on through it, make it go through it. 
but it would have been better if I could have went off, helped him a little bit, or got his mind back to me, and then come back. You always want the maneuver, or the most important part of your horse, to be a happy place. Make the other things outside of that happy place work. Most good horses all get a reward. You know, we talk about reward or give them something, it all goes back to rest. Most of the really, really good horses are very lazy, which means they're fairly easy to train because they instantly are looking for that reward, which would be the rest. If you took that little Palomino horse, the reason he figured out so quick, all he wanted to do was stand there and rest. So yeah, good question. I would have went back out, worked him a little bit, and then come back to him, for sure. There were two evening sessions that they had round table discussions and there there was a whole panel up there. I think it was eight. Yeah, a lot of great horse people. Right, and Bob Avila was on the Friday evening panel and Nick Dowers talked about the horse that he won the Futurity on. The goal for me early on is I, I wanted to be like these guys. I wanted to be the Futurity champion. I, I, wanted, I wanted to ride the best horse I could and, you know, quite honestly... He was the first one to take a chance on him. We bought him for 90, I think it was 9,800 bucks. I, I knew he was a really special horse, but I didn't really realize it until I took him to the first show. He, he was two, and it was in October at the Snapple Bit, and Doug Williamson rides up to me and he says, uh, he said, son, I'm gonna offer you this once. And I didn't know Doug, I'd never met him. He said, will you take 50,000 for him? And I said, I kind of him hawed and he says, I'm only gonna ask you once, and he, rode, he rides away. So that right then I knew he was something special. And then uh, later on that summer, Todd tried to buy him. And then it was, you know, maybe a month prior to the fraternity. And so I thought, man, if he if he wants to buy him this late in the game, then he might be something, something that I can do good on. And like I said, uh, I was fortunate enough to to have him and, and we just took a chance on me and it and it worked out. Yeah, basically how I ended up with him was was uh, and why I owned him was just, just because of that. Just, I didn't have clientele at the time. I was just, just getting going. You were willing to lose some money to invest in yourself, to build your career. Exactly. That's a very different situation sometimes that an owner has a horse with somebody else. You know, it's like, when it's your own skin on, in the game, you're willing to take a lot more chances, I think, just because you bought him to try to make something for yourself. So exactly, that's, it, it, and that's what it boiled down to is long-term, investment versus short-term investment. Short-term, yeah, I could have sold him and, and done great, but he's done way more for me long-term than he ever did short, would have done short-term. And so, like a lot of young trainers will ask me questions, you know, hey, I got this horse, should I sell him? And I tell them the same thing. If I'm gonna take a chance on something, I'm gonna take a chance on myself. You know, you like I said, you can get more money and, and you can you can make this and make that, but those great horses only come along once in a while. I, I always say, take a chance on yourself. With that too, you're hearing the pot at the end of the rainbow here. It worked. Yeah, we've had them that doesn't, don't work too. I mean, I bought half a horse for 75000 and he died and I didn't have it insured. You know, I don't, I, it was a little tough to swallow, you know, but I always feel I don't, I don't live in the past, I live in the future, you know. But uh, So we are no different than, we are customers. We just are trainers too. I've been trying every year since and I haven't got it done again. <laughs> <laughs> Part of what, you know, you get the taste once, you think you can repeat it. <laughs> and then later that session, somebody came up. Now, the, these guys are all great competitors. Bob Avila, Nick Dowers, Andrea Frapani, 
and Sean Flera. These guys are all very extremely competitive guys. Very. And a man asked the, the question about competing and what they think about as far as their, their competition goes. Right. They all, they all had different approaches. It was interesting. I remember one example, like the World Equestrian Games in France in 2014, when I think Richard was leading uh, until the last three competitors, and then there was Mandy, Mr. Papani, Mr. Florida, and all of you guys outnumbered each other. I think it's, maybe you had the best horses, but I think there's more than just the horse and the training. What comes up in your mind before you enter the arena? <laughs> That's a good one, guys. That is the question of the night. How long can we go? For me, it's a lot of fear. <laughs> People think that we're so confident that we're not. We're always doubting ourselves and all that. But then, leading up to it, you have to kind of doubt yourself. If not, you're never going to learn from your mistakes and you're not going to pay attention to what's going on underneath. So, People think confidence that is everything. I think confidence is big. While you're showing and leading up to a show, you need to be a little bit more humble and really keep questioning yourself. Question yourself, are you doing the right job? Is that horse feeling okay? I mean, before a big event, I just don't sleep very good. That's just the bottom line. It's, I'm always thinking, I'm always worried. It's, it doesn't matter how many times you've done it, it's, it never goes away something that I enjoy because it makes me feel alive, but it's, it's fear, so it's not something that you get that confident with. But then the minute I get into the pen, or the last five minutes, I think that nobody can beat me. That's just the way it is. <laughs> I, I just turn into a completely different mindset. I've got that perfect run, it's gonna happen, this is the way we're gonna do it. We're prepared, we're the most prepared at home. There's no doubt in my mind that I can get it out of this horse. Most of the time, just, no, it's not true, but I tell myself. <laughs> and I believe it. And you've got to believe in yourself and the horse. I think preparation is huge. I think you cannot overlook things at home. I think that knowing that you've done everything you can at home, that you've invested as much time as needed to be done, that you've paid attention to everything, I think preparation plays a huge part for me. For me, I always tell people I want to be as uncomfortable as I can at home so I can be as comfortable as I can when I get to the horse you know, I know that when I was showing a lot, I, I'm a, a freak about things being clean. Everybody knows it. I mean, everybody knows I'm just anal as hell about things. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, uh, hey. So, but, uh, you know, I lived in Oregon for a long time, and it rained, it rained all the time in Oregon. Anybody doesn't know that. So, when we get ready to go to a horse show, you know, the tack, everything is clean. The trucks and trailers are clean. And the kids would look at me and they go, you know, by the time we get to I-5, the trailers are going to be dirty. And I said, yeah, but when we get in, we feel like a winner. And I'm really, I really feel that way. I want my horses to be a winner at home. My fraternity horses, we would have dress rehearsals with them at home. We would put white boots on some, black boots on some, silver saddles on some, no silver saddles on some. We would see what they looked the best. And we'd take them out, stand them up, and take pictures of them and just see what they look like, you know, so we knew as much as you can that we have a show horse before it gets in the show pan. These guys, I know they have the ability to do this. One thing I had the ability to do is take things that didn't happen good and put them out of your mind right away. Because if you're in the finals of the fraternity, any fraternity, and you have three head of horses in there and you have a wreck on one, you better not worry about it for a while. And I, you know, it's, it might be hard for that customer to hear that, but 
you've got to be that way because that customer might have the next horse that goes in too. You know, and you have to have that ability to put that out of your head and focus again. I'm very much like Bob. I, I want everything to be perfect before we leave the farm. It's all got to be clean. I've even got the order of the trailer of where the horses I want them to go. I've got a good idea before I get to the turdy what stalls our horses are going to go in. That mental preparation before I leave for an event is super, super important. I think a lot of that comes, you know, like I'll go school my horses and I'll have an idea and I'll set up things. Very much like Andrea, sometimes I doubt everything. My wife says I'm a bear to live with about 30 days before the fraternity. I don't sleep so good. And, and things, you know, you just worry about things. Sometimes they don't even exist. Worry about them. One of the things that I do, and I know these guys here do too, they might not have taken the time to maybe study it, but if you can go sit in a dark room or go sit it off by yourself and envision yourself doing what you're supposed to do properly to the highest level, I can actually, when I get close to that fraternity, I can close my eyes and I can feel that horse turning, that horse stopping. But where that comes from is hours and hours of repetition and riding that horse and knowing your horse. You know, like when Nick was working those two-year-olds this morning, I'd ask him questions all the time. What's that horse doing to you? What do you feel right there? Try to read your horses the best you can. That helps you achieve some of those goals and mentally be ready. I'll, I'll keep it pretty short and sweet. Uh, it's, a, it's a little bit of both uh, Andrea and Sean. Uh, I love it to the point that I almost hate it. And that kind, kind of sounds funny, but like I, I love it to the point where you are worried, you are losing sleep. You know, you love it to the point where it almost turns your stomach. And, and I think that's important. You know, you, you've got to have that to get you through the, the good and the bad. And then I'm a, I'm a big believer in visualization, like, like Sean said, um, I've got a curtain in my tack room and I got a chair in there and don't come in there before I'm going to show because that's what I'm doing. I'm sitting there, I'm going through my run and not dwelling on the negative, but just, okay, in this little part, I need to help my horse here. In this little part, I need to help my horse here. And just the little things that are going to make the big difference. That's, that's what I'm thinking about. And, and then it's, it's like Andrea says, um, then once I walk in, it's like, hey, watch this. At least that's the goal. That's the goal. And then you're like, oh, shoot, they watched that. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things that I found was kind of interesting was that the symposium was called the Teton Ridge Along for the Ride Symposium with Andrea Fapani, which meant that Teton Ridge was a major sponsor. And I've heard the name Teton Ridge. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know if it was a a brand of clothing line or whether it was a partnership of some sort. A ranch, uh, what? <laughs> and Teton Ridge had this huge welcoming booth in the trade show area of the symposium. And I got to talk to Gilbert Peck, a representative of Teton Ridge, and he told me all I needed to know <laughs> about what Teton Ridge was and how they're trying to preserve the Western way of life. Here's that interview. We're talking with Gilbert Peck yes, from Teton Ridge. Can you tell me what Teton Ridge is? Yes, sir. Teton Ridge is a multifaceted media organization that's wanting to promote the Western lifestyle, the Western cowboy, and the Western way of life through competitions, through like training symposiums, training seminars like this. Mm -hmm. They want to give everybody access 
or give every, get everybody a chance to be exposed to the Western lifestyle and appreciate it for what it is, the amount of dedication and hard work it takes, the way of life, the horses, the athletes that partake in all these other modalities like rodeo, reining, cutting, rain cow horse, and they just want to get that out to people so they can have more access. Essentially keeping the cowboy tradition alive? Absolutely, they're promoting the cowboy tradition and that's their main, one of their main focuses is so people who see stuff on TV, they have a full understanding or if they always just wondered or wished or dreamed that they could be around the western horses and, and the western the cowboys, they have access and they can easily access it right. through media outlets and stuff like that. But Teton Ridge does own horses and has some trainers in their employ, correct? Yes, sir. They've got several barrel racers. Um, they've got Andre Fapani, who is here at the clinic, mm-hmm. uh, Corey Cushing, Todd Bergen. Those guys are all extremely successful in, in their aspects of the Western sport horse. And mm-hmm. so they have people like that who have the knowledge but have also had to put in the hard work and know what it takes to get to that level. So having people like that and give you access to those kind of people, it gives you a more full understanding of of the amount of dedication that it takes to be as successful as they have been and the amount of knowledge that they have gained through their experience. And all these guys, just it's, it's a passion, it's a way of life, and they want people to have access to that and just be able to see these guys and press the flesh and talk to these guys and if you have questions or or just the interest and what about the horses of teton ridge um they have several horses and i can't remember i don't know all the names of all uh-huh. the colts because they're buying because they want to partake in the competitions like they have Got people it. who are riding barrel horses they have reining horses cutting horses reining cow horses because you could easily just stand on the sidelines and just talk about these events but if you have some skin in the game skin in the game then you can see how that they're not just talking they're also performing and backing it up they want to be successful and they want to compete and they want to win but and you find the best people in the industry that can help you get to those goals absolutely excellent well thanks for talking to me you bet sir have a good day I hope you enjoyed this little taste of the Along for the Ride Symposium. You know, this was just a small part. It was three days, and it was packed with a lot of information. It really was. We brought home so many tidbits of information to work on and try with our horses. It was it was really great information. One of the really fascinating things that Andrea told us was that you see these horses do their maneuvers, and then you see them at the show and they've put all these maneuvers together. One of the questions that was asked was, do they practice the whole pattern at home? And the answer was no, they don't. They practice the parts of the pattern and they, they never do a full out run of the pattern. I'll tell you, you don't think about, these guys are athletes, these horses. When they do one of these patterns, they're exhausted at the end of it. Right. Yeah. And when they do the futurities, they might have to do that three days in a row. Their endurance is very important as well. But I just thought that was a really interesting, yeah, interesting and I, point. And I really think that you know, maybe the thinking there is that if you really run that horse hard in the practice arena, that 
he's not going to want to love that job, you know, Mm -hmm. but you can teach him the small basic parts of the pattern and then calling on him once to bring out his talent. He's going to be willing to do that for you once in a while, but he's not going to want to do it all the time, time, every time. And the really great ones, the really great horses are the horses that can put it all together when it's needed and give it their give it their all. It was really fun meeting all the people around. The AQHA convention was going on at the same time. We got to meet some of the AQHA people mm-hmm. and have a nice dinner. So That was we, fun. We really had a lot of fun. I want to thank Jim Tutal Essek for inviting us to come to Las Vegas and seeing the show. Uh, he was very instrumental in getting us there and very accommodating to whatever we needed, which wasn't much. We just needed a couple of seats, and that was really very helpful. It was great energy. It was fun to have a lot of horse people in the same area sort of focused on the same thing, improving. improving. Right, trying to make it better for the horse. Right. So I want to thank Andrea Fapani, Sean Florida, Nick Dowers, and all the folks that made that possible and the South Point, they were great. That'll do it for this episode. If you haven't checked out Andrea's podcast, please give it a listen. If you'd like to share a story or suggest a guest, uh, you can contact me at john at wopodcast.com. Thanks again for listening and sharing the podcast with your friends and riding buddies. Until next time, this is John Hare. And Renee Hare. Reminding you. To go have some fun with your horses. Bye-bye, everybody. <laughs>